And the last time we were together, we were showing contrast between Nicodemus and uh, John the Baptist. And so what I've been trying to do is, is uh, follow the pattern of Scripture as God has revealed His Word and try to emphasize the significance of how everything is connected together and as we follow the sequence in the Revelation, uh, we need to see that the Lord is seeking to tell us additional information by uh, the order in which the Revelation is given. And so I believe the Lord would have us uh, think carefully about the uh, comparison of the two personalities, Nicodemus and John the Baptist. And it's just interesting to me that so much of what we're talking about here relates to things that I was talking about Wednesday night for those that were able to be here to hear those things. Uh, the focus of a lot of what was said was had to do with idolatry idolatry and um, I don't know about you but uh, for many years I never really understood idolatry in the Old Testament and the kind of imagery that came to my mind when somebody would talk about idolatry was the stupidity of people to fall down and bow down and worship something made out of stone or some wooden image that had been carved and they would worship it. And it, it took me really quite some time as a Christian to begin to understand um, how that happened and, and why people would turn to idolatry rather than believing the message of the prophets. And so, as the years would go by, and I would continue to study the Bible, as we've, uh, I think, discovered so often, many of the, the, the answers to the questions that we have are really provided for us in the same book. We just need to think about it more carefully. And uh, so, as we all began to grow in our knowledge and understanding of Scripture, uh, this happened to me as well. And so uh, what I'm doing this morning is just sharing with you what I believe is the key to understanding uh, what idolatry in the Bible is really all about. I'd like for you to turn with me, if you, if you will, once again to Psalm 115. It's a passage that we looked at uh, Wednesday night. But it's, it's one of the main passages. There are several of them in the Old Testament that address this subject. But the Lord is talking about idols 
And uh, in verse 4, he said, Their idols are silver and gold, and the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. Hands they have. Uh, um, they have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. And then I told you that the key verse is the following verse, verse 8. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. If you're ever going to understand the subject of idolatry, you've got to meditate on that verse right there until it becomes clear in your thinking. When it says, they that make them are likened to them, that's saying that, okay, you've got eyes, but you can't see. You've got ears, but you can't hear. <clears throat> You've got hands, but you can't do anything with them. You can't work with them. You've got feet, but you can't walk. And um, the stone image or the thing made out of silver or gold or however precious we wanted to decorate this idol uh, the one outstanding thing about these creations is they could not think. They could not think at all. I mean, what, what do stones think about? Nothing. And so when the Lord says, you are like these images, you can't see. You can't hear, you can't speak, you can't work with your hands, you can't walk. As a matter of fact, you can't think. Not one thought that's of any value. You'll be ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, the reason I'm saying these things again this morning and connecting it with Wednesday night is because Nicodemus was like that. He was essentially an idol worshiper, and you know what he was worshiping? It was not the God of heaven. He was worshiping his own thoughts. That's what idolatry is. It is conceiving in your own mind what you think God is like, and you're projecting it onto some kind of symbol that's going to represent how you think how you see, how you hear, how you work, how you walk, all of these things. What we're essentially talking about is what Paul warned about when he said that in, uh, not necessarily the last days, but all throughout human history, Men have gotten away from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. 
and they've invented another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. That's what they've done. But what is that other Jesus? It's the one that they have fashioned in their own mind and projected, oftentimes in their church denomination. That's where idol worship takes place, is in church denominations that are teaching and preaching another Jesus that's invented in their own head. These churches have members that are blind. They cannot see. They cannot hear the truth because they turn away from it. Uh, it's like when Stephen was stoned. People would shut their ears and they screamed and ran on him and stoned him to death. And there are people that will not hear the truth. And so in the New Testament, here's the next interesting thing. What kind of miracles did Jesus Christ perform? Well, he healed the blind man. What else did he do? There was a man that could not hear. He was deaf. He could not hear. The Lord put his fingers in his ears and healed his ears so that he could hear. The Bible talks about a man that was dumb. He could not speak. And God loosed his tongue so that he could speak. The Bible in the New Testament, if you look these things up, we're not going to take the time, but you can find them. Healed a man with a withered hand. What kind of work can you do with a withered hand? No more than a stone idol. But the Lord healed the withered hand of a man. How about the man at the pool of Bethesda that could not walk? Everything that the Lord Jesus did in the New Testament is a description of what idolatry is in Psalm 115. These are idols that can't see, they can't talk, they can't hear, They're, they can't work with their hands, and they certainly can't walk, and the truth is, they can't think. And those that make them are likened to them. Okay, if we're likened to them, this is what the whole New Testament is about. It's about how God came down to deliver us, to save us from ourselves, from our way of thinking, from our way of seeing, our way of hearing, our way of working, works. Well, this was a description, really, of the problem of Nicodemus. He had his own way of thinking, a sort of a denominational way of, a, of thinking, a tradition of men. What is a tradition of men? Well, it's the way people get together to have fellowship over, okay, uh, I think the truth is this, and somebody says, I agree. 
Somebody else says, I agree. After a while, you get a community of people who think the same way. And so you build a building, put a steeple on it, and you've got uh, an idol where people come and worship and project into that church building their way of thinking, their way of seeing, their way of hearing, their way of working and walking in life, and so on and so on. Folks, the Bible, as Pastor Garrison says so often, is such an amazing book. Our biggest problem is we do not slow down enough to think about it. In elementary school, a lot of times they'll give these children little projects to do where they're told to connect the thought, to connect the dots. And so you draw a straight line from one dot to the next and, and so forth. And finally, after you connect enough dots with a straight line, an image begins to appear. And you see this image. And it, and it could be a horse, it could be a cow, it could be a chicken, it could be a, a person. But you can then see the picture. And the Bible is a lot like that. It, God has written a book that has these dots all over it. But you've got to have a childlike mind. You've got to understand that you don't know anything. You can't really see what the Lord is trying to tell you. But he says, if you'll draw a straight line and connect the dots, I'll show you something you haven't seen. And I think this is what the Lord is doing here. Well, the reason I've tied this in with Psalm 115 once again is because it's a, a description of the condition of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was worshiping another god, wasn't the god of the Bible. Well, what kind of god was it? It was the god of the tradition of men. I'm going to tell you something, folks. One of the most dangerous and deceiving things going on today is what's been going on since the beginning of time. And that is following the tradition of men. Being born in a, a home where your ancestors have always been uh, Presbyterian or Methodist or Pentecostal holiness or Baptist or Independent Baptist. Uh, you could just go on and on and on. And so why do you have these differences? Why do you have all these differences? Well, because of the way people think. And the way people see. And it's in accordance with what people want to hear. What people want to hear. The natural man does not want to hear the truth. He does not. And the reason is because it's a horrible message. 
It's an insulting message. I think I need to repeat this over and over and over again. The message of the Bible is one of the scariest messages you can ever think about. That's the truth. It's a horrible message. But it's the truth. I mean, what's good about being told that you are of your father the devil and the deeds of your father you will do? What, what, is, the, what is the enjoyment in hearing, going to a church where somebody uh, tells you that and tells you that there's none good and that includes you? None good. No, not one. There's none righteous. What does that mean? Well, there's none that do right. That's what it means. Righteousness is just a longer word for right. Okay, if the Lord says there's none righteous, he's not talking about the larger sense in which we usually think about it. The larger sense begins with an understanding that you do nothing right. Nothing. No one does anything right. How many people are there in the world that really believe their heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? How many people really genuinely believe that? How many people who go to independent fundamentalist churches just give lip service to a doctrine that is embraced in the church, and that's what it is. It's a doctrine that's out there. It's a doctrine we believe. This is our creed. We go down here, and this is what we believe. But it's always out there. That's not how God wrote this book. He wrote this book because of a problem that's in here. <laughs> the problem's not out there. Problems in here. Jesus Christ does not separate what he says about man from the person that you are today. The person that I am standing up here teaching the Bible. Everything that I'm saying is true about me. I love the world. I love the things that are in the world. I love it so much that I have to die every day, moment by moment, with the threat of that danger being so great that I live continually, continuously one thought away from destroying my life, my testimony. And you do too, every day. We are that close to disaster. And that's the significance of the Lord saying, pray without ceasing. Why would he say that, pray without ceasing? It's his way of saying, 
uh, you need to depend on me unceasingly. You need to depend on me without ceasing. That's how bad your situation is. Walk in the Spirit. That's what he said. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but walk in the Spirit. Why did he say that? Well, he's talking about how the only way we can survive this world and the temptations and the dangers of this world and the flesh nature is to have Christ's life in us doing the thinking and the doing. 100%. 100%. The mind of Christ, 100%. The life of Christ, the very spirit of Christ, the innermost self of who you are as a person is the Holy Spirit when you receive him as your Savior. I'm telling you, the message of this book is scary. Another way that it's scary is after you have read everything that it has to say and you give mental assent to it, is making sure that you've been honest in what you think and what you say to other people. Because the epidemic problem in the world today is the false profession of faith. It's people thinking they're saved when they're really not. It's like the five foolish who all had lamps, and I think he's talking about the King James Version. Ten of them had lamps, the ten virgins. They're called virgins because externally they appeared to be the same to everybody. Morally spotless, morally clean. They had never publicly done anything like commit adultery. They were like the rich ruler in Luke 18. From his youth up, he was morally clean. They were like the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, morally clean, but just as lost as he could be. Folks, if that's not scary to you, I don't know what can be said that would shake you up. It shook me up. It sure did. It shook me up to find out that I could be a Bible teacher and be lost. It shook me up that I could be a witness for Christ and actually see devils cast out of people's lives and they get saved and I be lost. That shook me up. It sure did. It shook me up to think that I could be the principal of Calvary Christian School for 50 years. Do many wonderful works that people might 
look at and say, well, he's a principal, and lose my soul forever. I'm going to tell you something, folks. If you ever look internally for reasons of justification before God Almighty, you are making a tragic mistake. But that's what describes Nicodemus up one side and down the other. The contrast to him is John the Baptist, one of the greatest mysteries in the Bible, John the Baptist. Filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb, miraculously born of parents that were way too old to even have children, way too old. He's named by God before he's even born. His name shall be called John. Zacharias was struck dumb and could not speak for simply halting after Gabriel told him that him and his wife Elizabeth was going to have a child in their old age. And he says, same thing Nicodemus did. That's not possible. How can a man be born when he is old? That's what Nicodemus said. How can he be born a second time in his mother's womb and be born? How can that happen? That's what Nicodemus said. But that's exactly what Zechariah said to Gabriel. How can these things be? I'm an old man. My wife is an old woman. And you're telling me that she's going to have a child? And Gabriel let him know right on the spot. Look at it. Luke's Gospel. Chapter 1. And Gabriel told him, I said, you're not going to be able to speak until that child is born. Because you did not believe the messenger that stands in the presence of God Almighty and came from heaven to tell you what was going to happen, and you didn't believe it. <clears throat> well, Abraham didn't believe it either. And neither did Sarah, who were old, way past the age of having a child. And the Lord says, you're going to have a child. Sure are, in your old age. And here was Abraham, 100 years old, and his wife was 90 years old. And... Uh, both of them agreed to help God out by introducing a handmaid so that Abraham could have a child by a younger woman. And Sarah, when the angel and when Abraham revealed to her that she was going to have a baby, she laughed. 
She laughed. And yet, in Scripture, Abraham is presented to us as an example of what it means to be saved because he believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. But when you go back and read the account, he didn't believe. If he believed, he would not have entertained the birth of the child through Hagar. If Sarah had believed, she wouldn't have laughed. But she did laugh. And God records it in the scripture. Why does he do that? Because the Lord is resolved in teaching us the significance of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And we better not forget it. He's our everything, which is the opposite of idolatry, which is the projection projection of what we are and what we think truth is onto something as dead as we are. And that's what Psalm 115 is, is teaching. They that make them are likened to them. They're idols that can't see, and neither can the people who make them. They can't see either. They can't hear, they can't smell, they can't work, they can't walk. And this is the condition of churches all over America and the world today that have invented a religious system that is not consistent with the revelation of heaven. I'm telling you, this book right here, without this book, we're on our own with nothing to worship but ourselves. That's it. Our thoughts, our way of salvation, our way of righteousness when it comes to what we think doing right is. Folks, this book is designed to reverse the problem in the Garden of Eden where Eve made the tragic mistake of worshiping her own free will and what she wanted. And as I brought out in that message, the problem is not out there. The problem was never the devil. The problem was her freedom to choose between God and Satan. That was the problem. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross because Satan deceived us. He died on the cross because we believed the devil rather than thus saith the Lord. He died because we used our free will. 
for self. And so the message of the Bible is we need to die to free will. And allow God's thoughts to be our thoughts. And God's ways to be our ways. And study until we understand Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. It is him that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. How can idolatry exist if we understand that. Jesus Christ is our everything. He's our everything. And so what this does is it reverses the problem of Genesis chapter 3. Where Eve went off independently. Looking for her own paradise with her thoughts the way she would see things with what she heard and agreed with concerning Lucifer in the day you eat the arm, you'll be as wise as God. Knowing good and evil, you don't know you don't need him to know good and evil. That's Nicodemus up one side and down the other. Nicodemus did not know the horrible message from heaven. He sure did not. And that man did not believe that he hated the truth. He believed that he was a personal representative of the truth. And he believed that he knew as much about what Abraham wrote about as anybody on the face of the earth. And he was a master in Israel when it came to what the Old Testament says. But I don't care if you are a master in Israel concerning what the Old Testament says. You cannot understand the true meaning of what was said apart from the Holy Ghost. You have to have the Holy Spirit or you cannot understand it. Folks, this book absolutely destroys idolatry and any hope that you could ever have in it. But what we have to understand is that in destroying idolatry, that's you and me. That's the horrible message from heaven. Every single one of us, every day that we live, deserve to be condemned forever. But God loves us. This is what the gospel is. That God loved the world when it was in that condition. God loved us when we hated him and proved it.
when we crucified him. God loved me when the only thing that I lived, loved for 26 years was me. And the paradise that I wanted for myself, my way, the way I understood it, the way I thought, and that's what I worship. That's what I live for every day of my life, and so did you. Anyone that says that's not me, I don't believe is saved. I don't believe it's possible to get saved. When your life is like Nicodemus, we need to see the stark contrast between Nicodemus and John the Baptist. What did John the Baptist have to glory in? Nothing. His identity came only from God. God said, you're going to call his name John. That was before he was even conceived. Folks, identity comes only from God. You are who you are because of who God is. And you cannot know who you are until you know who God is. And you worship him in spirit and in truth. And then God will reveal to you who you are. That you're made by his miraculous power. Your very being was understood before the foundation of the world. And he created you, listen, listen to this, not to live for yourself in terms of what you are excited about. He created us to live for him about what he is excited about. And that's the difference. That's the difference. This is the reason that Peter and John, who were fishermen, left their nets and followed him. Up until that day, their every thought was catching fish. It was their vocation. It was the money that they were going to make selling fish. John the Baptist started preaching. They started listening. John the Baptist laid it on, the horrible message from heaven. And told everybody that came. And there were multitudes that came. Multitudes of people heard John the Baptist preach. And he said, if you, can, if you don't repent of everything that you are. And become converted. You're going to die and go to hell. And he told the Pharisees exactly that. The Pharisees, the idol worshipers, the ones who were worshiping a God of their own invention. 
he told them, who was it that warned you about me? And why are you here? Don't come to me as though you're okay. But you better leave. You better leave with what I'm saying and think about it and then come back. Then come back. Prepared to repent of everything that you are because you're totally rejected by God and you're on your way to hell and don't know it. And so it was Nicodemus. So when you get into John the Baptist, you see this contrast. Nicodemus did not know God but what do we read about John the Baptist? Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He knew God. Sure did. Nicodemus had no clue what being born again meant. The Bible tells us there in Luke's Gospel that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. I want you to think about that. Has anybody ever asked you the question, when did John the Baptist get saved? Have you been able to give them a biblical answer to when, they got, when he got saved? How do, you, how do you understand a man that is filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb? Does that mean that he was born saved? I think so. I'm going to have to have somebody that has some really good insight in the Scripture that can show me that he was not saved when he was born. And so you say, well, how could that be? Uh, salvation has to do with the free will. What does an unborn baby know? Well, a better question might be, if you live to be as old as Nicodemus, and you were a master in Israel, what did he know? Did he know more than John the Baptist? No. He had lived his entire life up to that point and knew nothing. Nothing. So, where does that information come from that's going to result in you getting saved? Well... I don't think it's based on information the way a lot of people preach it. Turn to Psalm 34. <clears throat> Psalm 34. And I'll show you that God's thinking is not like ours because we think 
that you got to come down the aisle, you got to go down the Romans Road, you got to repeat after the pastor, you got to do all these things. You got to understand ever so much about the cross of Calvary, be able to explain it. Sanctification, you got to be able to understand that. Justification, you got to be able to explain that. There's so many things you got to know. That's not what the Bible says. Psalm 34 and verse 18, the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. So what can you put on top of that that would explain both of those things? A broken heart, contrite spirit. We're talking about something that's in here because that's where the problem is. It's our heart. The spirit of a man is the innermost self of a person. That's what the spirit is. I'll tell you the word that you can write on it. It's attitude. It's attitude. If there's any term that could explain the basis for salvation, it's attitude. If you've got a good attitude toward the horrible message from heaven, God can deal with that. If you realize the truth about what you are, then you're going to have a humble spirit about you. And you'll be contrite, which carries the idea of turning around. It's what John the Baptist was telling the the Pharisees, you got, you got to go out there after you've heard what I've had to say, and you got to think about it. And your attitude is going to have to change because you've got one sorry attitude. You can never go to heaven with that attitude. But the humble never stumble. And to him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. That's attitude. What did the thief on the cross know? The only thing that he could know is what he observed when he was out there, up there being crucified, where he couldn't do anything. His hands were nailed into the cross. He was a picture of the idol. That's absolutely worthless. As a human being, he was condemned and he knew it. He told his colleague on the other side as much. He said, this man here, what has he done? But we're receiving the just reward of what we've done because we're thieves and murderers. The man never went to church. He never repeated after the Lord the Romans road. He never gave tithes. He never helped old ladies. He never cast out any devils. He never preached in his name. 
What did he ever do? Absolutely nothing. But what Abraham did, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. The thief on the cross believed God and he turned and looked at him and he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom? That was it. What kind of word can you put on top of that? Attitude. You're not saved based on the, how much you know about the Bible. Nicodemus is an example to us of the fact that that's the wrong way of thinking. Salvation is based on your attitude toward God. It's, it's based on you realizing what idolatry really is, that if you're looking to yourself for how to live this life and make choices, and if you're looking to yourself in hopes of what is beyond the grave after you die, then you've got a pitiful Foundation to stand on. Because we know nothing. The only hope that we have is in what God knows and what God says. And we need to find in this church and teach it till he comes. what Abraham found. He found that he didn't have a thing to glory in. Nothing. And so it was not based on anything that he had ever done. As a matter of fact, from his own experience, his work was in total conflict with God's word of promise. Total conflict. He was looking to himself to provide a future in the birth of a child. Big mistake. And so what did Abraham find? Fine. It's very simple. He believed God. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. And that's what we need to do at Calvary Memorial Church. Believe God. Believe every word of God. Love this book. Study this book. And get up every day of your life and spend time in the presence of God Almighty. And remember his incredible love for us. Even in our natural state, 
when we were ungodly, when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Wow, I look at my watch at just about the right time. Um, it's, it's right about time to stop. I guess I've said enough to... I want to talk some more about John the Baptist and what I hope to do next time we come together, Lord willing, if we're still in this world, is I want to show you how you can be the greatest prophet, the greatest prophet, and plummet to the depths as though you didn't even know who God was. And so John the Baptist, that is so highly esteemed by the Lord, did exactly that. And if that can happen to John the Baptist, then where, where are we? Well, that's scary, isn't it? I'm telling you, this is a scary book. Scary book. But there are certain kinds of fear that are good to have. We need to fear our life every day, even after we get saved. I don't care if you become a preacher, a Bible teacher, a Christian school teacher, a missionary. Fear yourself every day. And that's why John the Baptist is recorded in the scriptures with the question, art thou he that should come? Think on that. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Who wants to pray for us? Somebody will pray. Anybody got a volunteer? Pray for us, dismiss us. Art? Okay, please.